Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the editor of the CHEST podcast section. I'd like to thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really interesting conversation. Um, today, we're fortunate to have uh, Dr. Hassan as our guest, and he's the lead author of the CHEST article entitled, Preparing for the COVID-19 Pandemic, Our Experience in New York. So, Dr. Hassan, could you please introduce yourself? Hey, uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Zubair Hassan. I'm a uh, pulmonary critical care physician over at uh, Long Island Jewish Medical Center in Northwell Health. Um, we're a 23-bed, uh, sorry, 23-hospital system uh, in New York City and the surrounding suburbs, and I work at one of the quaternary uh, care centers there at LIJ. And uh, we've been dealing with this COVID-19 pandemic since uh, beginning of March, and the cases have Surged tremendously, and we felt like it was uh, pretty important to talk about our early experience and how we prepared as a hospital and health system so that uh, hospitals throughout the country and, and the world really um, could understand what, what may come to them. Great. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, uh, Dr. Hassan. So maybe you could uh, dive into uh, why did you want to share your, your New York experience and what preparations did you make? So why we wanted to share experience, um, you know, we were hearing about these cases in China and then first in Italy after that uh, and, and knew that it was heading heading this way. And, and as a system, we knew we had to prepare early on for what may come or what may not come. Um, we felt that uh, as soon as the cases started rolling in, that there was uh, this was going to be something different from anything we've ever experienced before and that some places may not realize what is about to come. You know, speaking to some of our, our colleagues who lived through the HIV uh, uh, epidemic in, in the 80s, uh, they said this reminded them of that and then some. And we felt like people across the country really needed to know what are the steps that we took to prepare for it um, and what our experiences were uh, so that they could learn from it. Because even though we prepared starting in, in February as a health system for how to deploy resources and staff and what to do with surge capacity, um, we were still learning things as, a, as the epidemic was going on here. Um, and that was important to disseminate to other people so that they could, uh, you know, do just as well as we did and, and hopefully even better. Yeah, that sounds, uh, a lot of people were uh, terrified and uh, fearful when they heard about what was happening out in China as it came closer to our shores. So maybe you could tell us um, which people you involved and what specific preparations you made. Right, so there was a, um, you know, executive uh, command center that was made at a, at a high level in February that met um, sort of like a disaster preparedness uh, team uh, that consisted of different divisions, all the all the key stakeholders, so not only all the different doctors, pulmonary critical care, infectious disease, respiratory therapy, um, but also operational uh, staff, uh, people that were in charge of procurement, 
um, and then other uh, departments that typically would not be uh, involved in critical care, but uh, whose services would be affected by the pandemic, and figuring out how best to deploy those people uh, to help the frontline staff in ICUs and on the floors. Um, so there was also procurement, like I said, that was helping us figure out what uh, products that we needed, ventilators, but also things like uh, central lines, for example, or central line dressing kits, you know, uh, things that we didn't even know that we would need because we just it's an afterthought uh, in most situations. So that committee met very early on and sort of mapped out, you know, where would patients go, where do we think the, the most patients will be, what do we do with the patients that overwhelm one hospital? How do we get them to other places? Um, what is our search capacity at each hospital? What are the different supplies that we'll need? These conversations started happening way before we got our first patient. That way, when we did get that patient and if the numbers uh, increased, um, we knew what we would do next. So what challenges did you encounter during this preparation uh, process? Did you have a roadmap beforehand, or did you just uh, kind of wing it and then as time went by adapt to uh, situations? I think it was a little bit of both. Um, so we had a roadmap for each hospital in our system, what they would be able to do uh, in terms of surge capacity for both their uh, med surge floors, but also their ICUs uh, and emergency departments as well, of course. Uh, we knew that uh, once we exceeded this capacity, what unit would open up next and uh, where would those patients go? What is our nursing staff uh, plan for that? What is our physical therapy plan, respiratory plan, a physician plan, obviously? Um, but we also had to be a little bit flexible because uh, as the pandemic was going on, we sort of figured out which hospitals in our system were getting more patients than others. Um, you know, Queens, for example, was a, the epicenter of the epicenter, so hospitals there received a lot more patients than some of our hospitals further out east. So figuring out as the pandemic went on, you know, how can we decant some of these hospitals so that they can take new cases that are going to be coming in through the emergency department and redeploying staff as needed. So, uh, you know, preparing beforehand is important, but it's also very important to be flexible during the whole pandemic so you know, okay, well, this may may not work or this is not what our plan was initially, but we need to be able to adapt for what we're actually seeing. So if you get into the actual specifics as to uh, which challenges you met, um, so in the process, getting ready for this, what roadblocks did you encounter? Uh, so I'm a physician in Washington State, and maybe I hadn't, uh, uh, I didn't have the surge like you did. What specific things uh, surprised you that you said, oh, I didn't think about that, maybe I should have prepared for that, or maybe I did think about it, but I didn't expect it to be such a big roadblock, and I should have uh, prepared better for it. Maybe you could share those experiences with us. Yeah, I think the biggest thing was uh, knowing um, where our next unit was going to open up. Uh, you know, we, the, once these patients got admitted, there were a lot of them were on the floor, and obviously, when they get they, once they're intubated in the ER, very easy to know they have to go to an ICU. But you know, at, at the height of the pandemic, which I think we're just maybe getting past of now in New York City. Um, there were patients on the floor that were having rapid responses, you know, those emergencies, uh, maybe every half an hour or so. And so there were patients that were needed an ICU bed, uh, you know, sometimes three, four, five in the span of a few hours, which is not typical for us pre-pandemic. So knowing where, 
having multiple ICU beds open in one hospital, for example, at the same time and knowing that you're going to be getting a lot of patients at once, that was probably the biggest thing that we realized uh, that we, we need to be better on as the pandemic went on. And um, we quickly realized that we need to be able to have, you know, a way to distribute these patients evenly so that the receiving teams are not overwhelmed either. Um, that was one thing. And the other one was physician uh, and staff redeployment. So as new units opened up, we had to be prepared. How do we staff those units going forward? So, you know, today we know that there's an ICU attending and there's a, uh, maybe a fellow and a resident and a mid-level provider as well. Um, but tomorrow or even tonight in the night shift, if there's another unit that opens up, who's going to be staffing that unit? So having the foresight to know where who's going to be able to staff your next ICU um, should that need arise, it was really important. And we realized that early on that we need to, uh, this is not going to be a day-to-day thing. It may just even be a, an hour-to-hour uh, plan that needs to be redeveloped. So I think for people listening, they, they need to be prepared for, um, you know, having to open up maybe even multiple units at the height of the pandemic and knowing who is going to be ready to be there at, a, at, at the next shift. Um, that's something that I think we, we learned very early on. Okay, so, yeah, so I think that's pretty insightful. So maybe you could describe for us what your typical ICU practice was before the pandemic, uh, what surge you encountered in terms of patient numbers and volume, and specifically how you adapted the ICU. So how many teams were there? How many providers were in each team? Um, uh, what was going on uh, that changed uh, during the surge? Sure. sure. So, uh, you know, on a, on a pre-pandemic day, um, we have, uh, I'll use our, our, the one hospital that I'm at right now. As an example, we have our medical ICU, which is uh, 14 beds. Um, we, have a res- uh, we have a team of residents. We have uh, the fellow uh, the pulmonary critical care fellow and the attending. And then there's also the surgical ICU that has the surgical patients, the cardiothoracic ICU that has the cardiothoracic patients, and the cardiac care unit that has uh, the CCU patients. So each one has their own staffing model depending on their needs, whether it's uh, advanced care providers and residents or a fellow. Um, but, you know, typically those patients uh, in a, on a pre-pandemic day, we have about maybe 50 ICU beds here, for example. Um, and, and that number, you know, maybe off a little bit, but um, that's, that's about right. Um, we, as the pandemic went on, um, the, that, that model needed to change. So, you know, now pretty much everyone's a medical ICU patient. Uh, so we needed to be able to move those patients that, as they're coming into the ER, um, to the other ICU. So obviously because there was no uh, elective surgeries happening, uh, the surgical ICU volume decreased. And patients that normally would be in the surgical ICU, just they, they weren't there because they weren't having surgeries. Same with the cardiothoracic ICU, and then same with the CCU, and um, you know those their volumes decreased. So now pretty much every ICU became a medical ICU. So those uh, staff and, and providers that normally would be rounding in the SICU then became essentially medical intensivists and taking care of these COVID patients. So our model changed such that we started having patients going there um, and having those teams figure out, okay, well, if I'm staffing the surgical ICU, I need to figure out how I'm going to have uh, providers here 24-7, which may not have been always the case uh, beforehand. Um, and then the other part of it became we had to open up units that were not intensive care units beforehand because surgical volume decreased so much, um, there were no 
cases, no patients in the PACU or in our ambulatory surge unit. So those became ICUs as well. Um, those added at least 20 or 30 beds for each one, so that's about 50 beds that opened up right there. And so we also had to figure out who was going to be staffing those units and figure out where that staff was going to come from. You know, as a, as a pulmonary critical care division, we were already deployed, but we needed to ask other divisions and departments to help out as well. So that's where our surgical colleagues really came in and helped us out because uh, they had people that were, were free and were able to help out in terms of uh, advanced care providers and, and attendings and, and some fellows as well. Um, and another part of it is that the Children's Hospital, which happens to be, um, you know, attached to this hospital, um, they were able volunteering to help out as well. So some of their uh, critical care fellows, the PEDS fellows, as well as the pediatric intensive care attendings, um, they came over and helped out and volunteered to uh, round an, uh, on an adult ICUs. Um, and the way we modeled that is we had some of our adult pulmonary critical care fellows uh, round with these other units so that uh, they had some help and, and guidance in terms of how to take care of, uh, you know, patients that people would not normally be taking care of. Um, so what we did as a pulmonary care, pulmonary critical care division is we took our fellows and faculty and sort of helped, you know, divided them up a little bit so that they were rounding in all these units and, and helping out in, in whatever way people needed to and, and answering questions about, you know, ventilators settings that they normally would not be dealing with on a pre-pandemic day or medical management of, of complex ARDS patients. Um, so that's really important for people to understand that you're, you're going to be, if, if the pandemic really takes hold the way it did in New York for you, um, you're going to need to count on other divisions and departments to help out. Um, people that uh, may need to go out of their comfort zone to help out, um, they, they need to because uh, they, they are going to be key to helping manage all these surge of patients. Um, I would start looking into that now and seeing who can volunteer, who can really be there to help staff these units because it's, it's uh, you know, what we found is that it's just, it's overwhelming for just people to take care of that, you know, the medical intensivists to take care of on their own. They, uh, other divisions and departments really stepped up for us, and I think that's important for other people to, to plan for now as well. And that's really important, getting the help of people who can before roles. Um, and then how did you deal with this um, provider fatigue, um, ensuring that they well-rested so that they could go into the situation um, and not expose themselves to contamination? And then how did you deal with the providers uh, who became sick? Um, because that would create a, sort, a shortage of uh, uh, physicians or uh, nurses or uh, RTs. Yeah, so, uh, you know, each, each uh, specialty really had their own um, plan for for how to deal with, uh, you know, providers that became sick. And, and as we learned more about the disease, that, that sort of changed as well. Um, the, we had a lot of volunteers, luckily, a lot of people that were coming in from uh, around our health system that said, hey, listen, I don't normally do this on, uh, on a pre-pandemic day, but if, if someone can kind of be around for me to, to pick their brain, I'm more than willing to help out. So we had a lot of outpatient doctors that... Obviously, their volume dropped. They came into the hospital and helped out um, as hospitalists on the inpatient side. Some of our hospitalists uh, stepped up and, and offered to round on some of these critically care, critically ill patients, um, and we helped uh, with by having a fellow with them. Um, a lot of intensivists from other divisions, surgical, for example, 
and pediatric came over and, and helped fill in the gaps. Um, if a provider or, or uh, became sick, um, you know, the best way to deal with it would be to have a pool. Um, it's really all hands on deck. I think everyone realized that very early on. We did have that happen a few times where people got sick and unexpectedly, um, you know, had to self-quarantine. And um, we just sent out a message to, hey, you know, so-and-so is not doing well today. They, they need the time off. Who can work this shift? Um, so everyone just needs to be very flexible. I think this idea that, well, this is supposed to be my day off or my week off, that sort of got thrown out the window. Um, our prior schedule is, is really not applicable anymore. Uh, and, you know, everyone understands that they can be asked to do something at, at a moment's notice, and that's just because that's the need um, that we have. Um, in terms of provider fatigue, um, the way we've modeled our schedule, and, and again, every unit that's staffing their own unit um, has a different model, but for, for us, um, we have a schedule where we're five to seven days on at a time, uh, and then we have about a week off in between before we're, we're doing another stint. Um, that's sort of our way of managing the fatigue and making sure that we're not burnt out because that's going to happen. I mean, this is uh, very taxing physically but also very emotionally taxing in terms of what we're seeing and, and the illnesses that we have. is just nothing that we've seen before. Um, and so it's important to build in those off days and, um, luckily, in our, in our division, our hospital, people, people understand that, and um, we're trying to make sure that someone that uh, just looks like they're, they're tired, we're, we're volunteering to even just give them the one day off in, in between so uh, that they can continue doing what they need to do. So I don't think there's a good answer for how to mitigate that other than, you know, you just come together as, as, uh, as a division, a department, a system, and realize that you know, this is not normal times that we're in, and everyone just needs to help each other out. Yeah, I think it's really essential. These aren't normal times, and people need to pull together. So one of the critical issues that emerged, uh, and it was uh, um, on the news, is the shortage of uh, PPE, and that's pretty important, uh, and I think we've all come to the very important conclusion that it's not just the providers, but it's also the cleaners, it's the um, the nursing staff, it's the RTs, it's everyone that's interacting with these patients. We want to make sure that they're well protected because uh, we don't want them to get sick um, and, and, and have to go home. So how did you address that and make sure that you had adequate supplies uh, so that you could protect uh, all your staff? Yeah, luckily, again, this goes back to the planning that happened uh, starting in, in uh, end of January, February, beginning of February, uh, our procurement uh, in our health system really did a great job of making sure that we had adequate supply, um, you know, making sure that uh, we had all the equipment that we needed. Obviously, a lot of people were donating as well, um, so that, that helped out a lot. The public helped out a lot. Uh, the way that, uh, our, you know, our procurement, is, we're lucky we have a large health system, but our procure, procurement division was able to get all these supplies and distribute it accordingly depending on uh, patient volume. Um, and then once it was at the, the hospital, we really made sure that we, we had um, a way for people to get it in a controlled manner. I mean, we didn't want, uh, we explained to people, you know, what exactly they needed to wear and, and how to wear it and under what circumstances you, you definitely need to change your N95 mask, for example. Um, you know, we were well supplied, luckily, and uh, I don't think there was a day where people were not able to get the equipment that they needed to take care of patients safely. Um, 
so we were lucky in that regard. And I think hopefully by now, given how much uh, press this has gotten, uh, every hospital system has, has done their due diligence and, and gotten adequate supply. Agree. Um, so your uh, report uh, came out, uh, I think you submitted it to the mid-March of 2020, and uh, we're already uh, towards the end of April. Maybe you could tell us uh, anything that's changed uh, uh, from what you published earlier um, or anything that surprised you uh, since your publication? Um, I think the the only thing that's really changed is the numbers and, and how many patients we've had. Obviously, it's, it's increased uh, tenfold easily. Um, a couple thousand patients now, so those numbers are, are you know, a lot higher now. Um, the thing that I think we've learned since the publication of that paper um, was the need for divisions to to really step up and, and uh, redeploy staff. Um, the the amount of help that we've gotten from other specialties that normally would not be doing inpatient work has been tremendous. And I think it's very important for other hospitals to plan for that surge. And, and you know, you're going to have a lot of staff that are going to be overtaxed, you know, your inpatient med surge units and your ICUs, but you're also going to have a lot of staff that um, are not going to be doing anything because they don't have the outpatient volume or the surgical volume. And, and those are the people that you're going to need to redeploy and figure out you know, how they can best help your efforts because um, you're going to need them. So I think that's something that we realized about a week or two in where, you know, we have all these people that are free to help out and, and we need to get them to places where um, where we need to help. I think that's very, very important for people to plan ahead of time. And then the other thing that we've learned is that communication, and, and we've always known this to some extent, but especially in disaster, is that communication is, is key. Um, having uh, meetings daily uh, just so you have a plan for the day, um, but also disseminating that information to all the frontline staff. Communication is so important during the pandemic. Knowing, um, you know, what the plans are for the next unit amongst um, the, the, the disaster planning committee, but also for the people on the front line, the doctors, the providers that are actually seeing these patients, knowing where the next unit's going to be, knowing who is going to staff it, knowing what supplies there are, having the operations teams at each hospital, having the foresight to uh, properly um, uh, man the unit and have the appropriate supplies there ahead of time so that you're not opening a unit and then figuring out, okay, what are, what are the equipment that I need there? Um, that's really important. Communication is very key. Um, that way everyone knows, uh, you know, what the next steps are. I think the thing that we realize is uh, that if you're planning for tomorrow, today, you're already too late. You have to be planning for next week. So that's a really important point, uh, making sure that you're planning uh, for several weeks in advance. Um, there's uh, been reports that we may expect a very high burden of disease uh, come fall uh, with both influenza and uh, COVID uh, as possibilities. Uh, what plans are you making for that, and what do you think uh, should be done differently? So they are already, um, you know, have surge plans in place, and, and I don't think there's, uh, you know, any expectation that this is going to go away anytime soon. Although the volume is decreasing, um, we're all very aware acutely that the, at any time it could ramp up. So um, we are not necessarily getting rid of our surge plans, but we are getting, you know, 
starting to realize that you know at some point elective surgeries that were put off are going to need to happen again. And so we're anticipating that, but at the same time anticipating the possibility that we could have this surge again. Um, so I don't think anyone is uh, really shutting down any of these new ICUs that we've opened up um, in the sense that they are maybe going back to what their original purpose was, but um, could quickly adapt again to a surge of patients. And um, the what was the other part of the Oh, I think you, you answered it. Uh, it had to do with both the influenza and the um, uh, COVID uh, uh, outbreaks that may occur later during the year. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think the, if we are just executing our surge capacity that we are, our surge plan that we have now and, and um, hoping that it doesn't come that way. Um, and I think the key part of that is actually also building an outpatient uh, plan for all this. So, um, a lot of the patients that are being discharged now, um, they're going to need an outpatient follow-up, but the, the use of telehealth has really uh, increased as well in the last few weeks in our health system and across New York City. So we're trying to build out a, a program where we can try to see these patients uh, via telehealth or in the outpatient world, just in person, and trying to keep those patients out of the hospital. That's going to be really key as well because a lot of people are going to, um, come to the ED uh, when they're sick, which is obviously very natural, but some of these patients don't need to come to the emergency department. And that that's uh, important for two reasons. One, so that the ED doesn't get overwhelmed, but then two, also because we don't want to spread any diseases for, to people that may not actually have them to begin with. So um, part of the planning for any future surge is going to be how do you encourage people to stay out of the emergency department if they don't actually need to go there. And part of that is uh, having a, a plan for your outpatient offices to see these patients. So surging um, the outpatient docs and giving them a greater capacity to see patients than they had before. Uh, telehealth is going to be huge for that because uh, people may not want to come into the office. Um, and, and just wait around a waiting room full of sick people. So I think that's going to be really key to mitigating any future surges, but also helping you um, manage all these patients that came into the hospital now and are just starting to get discharged and, and needing outpatient follow-up. Gotcha. And I agree, telehealth has been a, a huge revelation over the last month. So one of the questions that have uh, that we've been trying to address is um, we obviously uh, limiting um, uh, elective surgeries, but there's kind of this gray line of patients that require urgent uh, approaching emergent surgeries where if we delay a procedure, uh, we may end up uh, uh, delaying the diagnosis of a cancer and delaying treatment for what would otherwise be a treatable condition. And if we delay for two months or three months, they could end up having an incurable condition. How are you all dealing with uh, that uh, question? Yeah, yeah. So there was always a mechanism, even though uh, elective surgeries were, were canceled, there was always a mechanism to appeal that for by the individual surgeon um, to, you know, to his or her direct report uh, and, and saying that, hey, I think this patient really does need this procedure. So there was always a way to do that if the doctor felt that it was important for a procedure to happen. So I think that's important for people to realize that even though the elective uh, surgeries were sort of all canceled, if you really felt that something was that important, um, then there was a way to get that done um, on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, as the surgeries are starting to open up again, there's obviously a backlog of cases. So um, what our system has done is, is uh, they are creating a, like a priority system, essentially. So triaging these cases 
um, and deciding which ones will need to happen sooner rather than later uh, now that we're starting to think about it and hopefully soon this week start uh, having some of these elective surgeries done again um, because they are, as you said, they're, they're no longer elective. Some of them are starting to become semi-urgent or urgent. Um, so having a plan for how to appeals, uh, you know, which surgeries need to happen despite there being a pandemic, and then also when surgeries open up again, uh, having the foresight to triage all the surgeries that have been put off in terms of which ones should we start doing first, and then knowing how to um, mitigate the, the risk for infection. So I know that there's a, a plan to test these patients that are coming in for or coming back for surgeries now before they get uh, into, the, uh, into the hospital or the outpatient surgical center to test them for COVID-19 so that we know how to isolate uh, going forward. So that plan also needs to be in place. That should be part of everyone's um, opening up plan again, as it may be. I agree. Um, and then I wanted to turn our attention to um, evidence-based medicine. Um, there's been a wealth of uh, reports coming out, uh, a lot of them anecdotal, and we're still waiting for some really good randomized trials um, of uh, interventions um, in uh, COVID. How did you address this issue um, uh, in terms of, you know, making sure that your providers are providing excellent care, but that you're not swaying practice to the latest report that's out uh, that isn't uh, that hasn't have, doesn't have any merit or still needs to be proven? Right, right. So, I mean, that's a very tough question because you want to do right by your patients and and you want to make sure you're offering a treatments that uh, can help, obviously, but, uh, you know, we're all learning about COVID-19 day to day. So I think the way to best do that is to have daily meetings amongst uh, key staff, key specialties about what they're seeing on the ground in terms of symptoms and, and lab values and clinical findings so that your staff on the ground um, can actually treat these patients. So, the, like I said, that this committee that meets every day um, uh, on a high level, they, they get information from their respective divisions, uh, whether it's pulmonary critical care or uh, surgery or infectious disease, rheumatology, all that. Um, they're meeting daily and discussing what the latest uh, findings on the ground are and uh, trying to figure out, you know, what should we try, what's safe, what's not safe, what should be done in only a clinical trial setting, what should be done, um, you know, because it seems uh, safe to, to do based on the data that we have now um, and disseminating that information back down to the front line. So I think it just goes back to communication. Um, you know, what we're seeing, for example, um, is, uh, you know, patients may develop clots or there may be a lot of inflammation. So, you know, how best to treat that? Should we anticoagulate these patients? Should we give them anti-inflammatories? Who should we be giving it to? Um, should we be doing it as part of a trial? That information, you know, what we're seeing on the ground gets fed up the chain to uh, our, our higher-ups, and, and, and they're discussing amongst themselves that this is safe, this is not safe, um, we should not be doing this, we should be doing this. Uh, that committee needs to have a good representation from all the different providers so that everyone is sharing all the information on what they're seeing on the ground. Um, and then communicating that back down to everyone, I think there needs to be a, um, a very clear communication as to this is what our treatment algorithm is so that everyone is sort of on the same page and you don't have one system that's doing or one hospital that's doing one thing and one hospital that's doing another. So early on, there should be some sort of treatment algorithm that, you know, your committee makes 
uh, and then that needs to be disseminated very widely to everyone so that everyone knows that this is the latest thing that we're doing so that no one is doing something that um, is potentially dangerous um, you know, or not helpful. Um, I think that's been a good way for us to make sure that we're taking care of these patients but also doing it very safely. I agree, and I think you've used the word communicate a lot, and I think it's key. So, um, uh, Dr. Asan, as we approach the end of this podcast, um, I just want to give you the opportunity to maybe leave our listeners with some uh, key words or some advice that you would give them uh, about preparing for uh, the, this pandemic if they haven't experienced it yet, or if they uh, experience it later uh, in the fall. Um, I think you've stressed the importance of communication, and we definitely want to thank uh, everyone that's uh, been to New York to help you out there. Yes, I mean, I think there's the, definitely thank you to everyone that's come from across the country, really, to, to help us out. Um, like I said, communication is very important, so having a mechanism for that in place for not only amongst the, the, the disaster planning committee, but also your frontline workers, um, whether that's through a daily email, a newsletter, or, you know, we use uh, uh, chat app teams uh, to uh, disseminate that information. You just have to have a mechanism for that in place so that everyone has a way to know what's going on and also ask the questions that um, they need answered. Um, what I would tell other people is that you need to plan, like I said earlier, if you're planning for tomorrow, today, you're already behind the eight ball. You need to be planning for uh, you know, surges going a week on or a couple weeks uh, forward. So definitely planning ahead. Um, the other part of it is just knowing, uh, you know, where your next uh, units are going to be when you're uh, getting creative in terms of how are you going to manage patients, where are you going to manage patients, and who is going to manage patients. So uh, knowing what staff you have available, what uh, resources you have available, and how you're going to uh, convert those resources into what you need now. Um, being flexible is very important, um, but also having the foresight to know that, this is who is going to work where, this is what this place is going to be for, this is uh, the equipment that we need. Um, that's going to be really important. So I think um, the key message I need to tell people is that they need to be flexible um, because this is something that requires uh, adaptation on a, on a daily level. That's a perfect way to end the podcast. Uh, a very big thank you to Dr. Hassan for a great conversation, and I'd like to thank all our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper. And this is a chess podcast.